Well, this morning we're continuing on with our sermon series uh, in the book of Matthew. And uh, we're in a heavy text this morning. We're in Matthew 27, and it's the crucifixion. And uh, it's, it's a very extensive passage here this morning. Uh, it's about 25 or 30 verses or so. So go ahead and remain seated in your seats, and I'm going to go ahead and read the text, okay? Matthew 27, and we're starting in verse 27, if you're following along in your own Bible or your own app, uh, and it's also going to be on the screen as well. Matthew 27, verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others have said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am uh, I'm tired today, and, uh, and so I just pray that um, 
that in my weakness, in spite of my weakness, uh, that you would bring your word to rest on our hearts this morning. I pray for your spirit to illuminate our hearts to the text that you have for the word that you have for us this morning as we look at the gospel and look at Jesus and his cross. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So today what we're going to be doing is focusing in on the three cries of the cross according to Matthew. The three cries of the cross according to Matthew. Each gospel looks at Jesus, his life and his death, through a slightly different lens. And what I want us to do today is to look at Matthew's view of the cross. And so we're going to be looking at the three cries of the cross according to St. Matthew. And just diving right in, the first uh, cry that we see is in verse 46, where Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's interesting about this uh, term, loud voice, which is also used in the next cry, by the way, this idea of a loud voice should be translated like guttural yell. Like, or, guttural, or even scream. It's used in, in, in a sense of screaming out, crying out. And what's interesting about this uh, text here is that we see that the scream was not born out of physical suffering. Jesus stayed mostly silent during his beatings. And Jesus up to this point has been pretty calm, actually outside of the garden when he was distraught, But this text gives us a clue as to some things that are going on here. And one of the things that it says in in this uh, text right before Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says that darkness came over the land. And and this darkness that comes over the land uh, is, is literal, like the darkness actually did come over the land. But it was also emblematic of what was happening to Jesus spiritually. And that is... He was experiencing hell. He was experiencing total emotional, physical, and spiritual darkness. What's really interesting, if you go into the scriptures and you begin to kind of do a word study on this concept of hell, you know, and look up the descriptors of hell, you actually find that darkness is used to describe hell more than fire. Isn't that interesting? Like when you do a word study on hell, darkness is actually used more than this idea of even fire. Both are used, but darkness is the descriptor that that is the predominant descriptor of hell. And that is what is happening here to the Lord Jesus. His soul is being plunged into absolute darkness, total spiritual isolation and darkness, spiritual destruction is what is happening here. There is a sense of being eternally lost, no future hope, total hopelessness, total isolation, total abandonment and forsakenness by God and man. And he's experiencing in this moment all of the infinite sufferings of those who should have been cast out. It reminds me, you know, this idea of darkness, I am... I've taken both my kids on separate occasions to underground caverns, and I can, I've taken Summer to some caverns, and I've taken Seth to uh, Ohio caverns. I don't know if you've ever been inside of a, of a cavern, you know, under, underground cave, 
But uh, I remember an occasion like where I've taken both Summer and Seth to these caves, and they take you down you know, into the belly of the cave. And they're maybe only about a mile or two long, um, but they're, they're sometimes much longer than that. But the portions that they've kind of carved out for you to tour safely are maybe only a mile or two long. And once you get into the belly of a cave, one of the things that they often do, and they've done this on both times that I've taken my kids to the caves, is once you get into the belly and it's, there's all this lighting inside, they tell you, okay, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask everybody to be quiet for a moment, pick a spot, and stand there and don't move. Okay, and we're going to turn off the lights for just 60 seconds. We're going to turn off the lights, and it's going to be so dark. We're, we're in a place where no light reaches. No light from the outside is going to reach here, and so your eyes are not going to be able to adjust. It is total darkness. There's no way your senses can ever adjust to this level of darkness. And then they kill the lights, and you're putting your hands in front of your face like to see, like, is it true? Will I be able to? And you can't see anything. Total, totally disoriented. Total, absolute darkness. And they only do it for like 60 seconds because people begin to like panic in that kind of physical darkness. And Jesus is thrust into not just physical darkness, but spiritual and emotional darkness. Totally disoriented. No hope. No way his senses can adjust to it at all. But why? Why Why is Jesus crying out? Well, we get also a glimpse of this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 22 which says this in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I am poured out like water and my bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now what's interesting is that chapter in Psalm 22 that Jesus is quoting on the cross, it ends with these two verses. It says, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Done what? What did he do? What did he do that was deserving of God forsaking him? Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what's fascinating about Paul's words, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, it's it's a word to make or to even... Like, he did it. He did it. And it's the same word that's used when it's talking about Jesus doing his miracles. He did these miracles. He did these signs and wonders. And that same kind of verbiage is used to talk about 
he is made into sin. In other words, this idea of he did it, what did Jesus do? Now follow me here, this is kind of mind-blowing. It's not just your sin that's transferred onto Jesus. It's the very act itself. It's the identity itself. So when God the Father looks at you, he does not see, oh, here's a person who was a sinner, but their sin was transferred to Jesus. That's not how the Father sees you. When the Father sees you, he sees someone who is perfect, who has never done and committed any act of sin in the first place. And when he looks on Jesus, he sees not just someone who has taken on somebody else's sin, but he sees that person is the sinner. That is the person that committed it. That is how far the transfer is. That's how grave it is. It's much more explicit than just saying your sin has been transferred. It's the very act, the very identity of it in it of itself. The one not knowing sin on behalf of us, sin he did. That would be a, a very accurate way to translate it. So you, Christian, didn't even do the sin anymore. Jesus did it. That's the extent. And this is why God forsook Jesus and why Jesus screamed. Because he not only took on our sin, he became the sinner, the one who did it. Jesus is now the sinner. And therefore, because he did it and not you, God pours out his wrath on Jesus and forsakes him. And that's the first cry that we see on the cross. The second cry is in verse 50 where it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, again, this guttural scream, and yielded up his spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what that cry was, but we know what it was because John records in uh, John 19 that what Jesus spoke in that instant was, it is finished. This is what he screamed, it is finished. But even if we didn't have John to clarify for us, uh, we would have an idea of what, it was, what Matthew was talking about because of verse 51 where he says that the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Now, we don't have time to get into, like there's this, another section there that you, maybe you picked up on where it talks about all of these people, kind of res, these little mini resurrections, and they're going around and, and, and people are seeing them and all of that stuff. That's a whole nother sermon or a whole nother Bible lesson, and I don't want us to get distracted or hung up there today. Um, like, but let's, so let's look at this. The curtain is the barrier. Okay, a curtain is a barrier. And the curtain in the temple that it's referring to, this veil, was a heavy and thick veil. I mean, it was practically soundproof. Very, very heavy curtain. Not, you know, something that you hang up in your house. A very heavy, thick material that is hung up, that is a barrier. And in the temple, there, are, there were all kinds of barriers. Now, keep in mind that the temple, right, represented for the Jews the presence of God. The temple was where you went to experience the presence of God. And what's interesting is, in the temple, there were all of these barriers. Uh, if you were a Gentile and not a Jew, you had to stay out in certain areas. You could not go in. You were barred from certain areas. If you were a woman and not a man, you could only go in so far before you were barred from entering in even further. And then there is the innermost area, the Holy of Holies, that not even the priests could enter. Not even the regular priests could enter. Only the high priest could enter in 
this area where this curtain was at, and it represented the very presence of God. And that was torn. And, and what, what these barriers represented to people was this. And this is how they understood it. No matter who you were, how good you were, how much you sacrificed, how much you gave, you could not enter the presence of God. And then something shifts. Jesus dies and the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Conveying that Jesus is rejected so that we can be welcomed into the presence of God. Jesus stands outside now of the veil of God's presence so that we can be restored to the Father. Atonement is finished. It is finished. He paid once and for all. Our debts are settled. It is finished. Now this answers some of our personal dilemmas that we uh, wrestle with, and that we are people that want to do what's right, right? We try to be good people, and so, since most of us are good and decent people, we want to make it right when we do wrong, but our desire to do good is actually crushing and defeating because we continually mess up. I don't know about you, but not a day goes by where I don't sin. Um, I want to do good, but I don't, right? I, I, can, I can relate to the Apostle Paul when he says, oh, wretched man that I am. I want to do this, but I do this. Who will save me from this? I can never atone for my sins because they stack up daily faster than I can atone for them. I can, I in of myself can never be finished. I can never be finished. I'm always working for my own righteousness. And what this second cry communicates is that I don't have to work for my own righteousness anymore. It is finished. My sin isn't on me anymore. Praise God, I'm not barred from the presence of the Father. It is finished. And the gospel position then isn't that we are trying to uh, finish our own atonement by obeying, but rather we obey because it has already been finished for us. Our obedience and good works are now no longer motivated out of this sense of, of duty or this sense of appeasing an angry God, right? But rather, now we obey because it has been finished and because we have a loving Father. For uh, Christmas this past year, um, I bought my son Seth a gaming PC. It's something he's wanted for a long time. And so we splurged and we got him this gaming PC. And one of his favorite games is actually a CAD program. And if you don't know what a CAD is, it's called computer-aided design. It's software that engineers use to build things, to design things. And so he's really into this. He's got a totally, like I'm more of the artistic mind and he's much more of the analytical side of things. And so he, he'll spend hours just sitting down at this CAD program designing machines that do different things, and he just has a, a ton of fun doing that. And so um, his computer is in my office, and it's right next to mine. And so one day I'm sitting there working, and he's, you know, over here designing stuff, little engineer over here. 
And, um, and, he, and we were, were kind of talking, and I was talking to him about how much fun I was having uh, going through a uh, course where I'm um, learning to become a pilot, a private pilot. Just, it's, it's on my bucket list, and I thought, you know, something fun to do. Um, so, so I've been going and taking these courses and flying, and so I was just telling him about, hey, it'll be so much fun that someday when I'm not lethal in the air, uh, you know, and someone's signed off and, and you know, I've, I've safely come down a few times, right? Uh, I'll have to take him up in the air with me. And so we were kind of talking about this, father and son, you know, working, having this conversation. And so then he says, Dad, what kind of airplane do you fly? And I said, I fly a Cessna 172. And he's like, okay, well, how do you spell that? So I tell him how it's spelled. And so then he, oh, he, he Googles it, Googles the photos of a Cessna 172. And out of the corner of, of my eyes, I'm beginning to work, I see that he has these photos pulled up of the airplane. And, excuse me, in the CAD program, he starts designing this airplane for me. Why did he do that? Why, and, you know, when he's done, he's very proud of it. He presents it to me. Dad, he spent like an hour or two on it. Hey, Dad, look at this airplane that I built you, this Cessna 172. And I'm like, dude, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Does it, does it actually fly? And he shows me, yeah. And so he's flying it around, you know, in this virtual world. Why did he do that? Why did he build my airplane? He could have, he didn't have to build me an airplane. He could have built anything he wanted to. He could have built a jet. He could have built a robot. Why did he build the airplane? His work was an expression of love for me. Dad, look, I've built you something. I'm offering you something that I know that you love, that pleases you. His work was not born out of some sort of desperate attempt to appease my wrath. Right? That's not how we relate. Like, we have a good relationship. It, he, was, he, was, he was doing this as an offering of love. And here's the thing about the plane that he built. If I'm honest with you, it wasn't exactly a great representation of a Cessna 172. It was crude. It had imperfections. But as a loving father, I care less about the imperfections of his work and more about the love that he is expressing, don't I? That is the kind of relationship that Jesus is offering us to the Father through the cross. It is finished. You have good standing with the Father. So are you relating to Him as a loving Father, or are you relating to Him like He's an angry Father? I've, I've heard people um, shun or reject Christianity saying, who wants to, who wants to follow a God that demands that you obey Him or else he throws you into hell? And my answer is, well, probably no one, but thank goodness that that's not the gospel. The gospel is that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, while we were yet not obedient, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. It is finished. And then we get to the third cry from the cross. Now, maybe you've kind of peeked ahead and you're like, now, Pastor Eric, wait a second. I don't see a third cry from Jesus. And that's true. Uh, the last cry that Matthew shares is actually from this group of Roman soldiers and centurions uh, that cry out, truly, 
This was the Son of God. Now, Matthew intentionally mentions, he could have said people in the crowd. He could have just said, Matthew could have said there were people in the crowd that cried out, uh, truly this was the Son of God. But he intentionally mentions that it's these Roman centurions and soldiers that made out this cry as opposed to the religious elite. Matthew continually throughout uh, his book tries to convey that it's often the outsiders, uh, the sinners, the worst people who get the gospel first because they don't have a pedigree or a work that they can turn to. Religious people, pastors, priests, faithful church attenders, overall moral people, we have a tendency, don't we, to begin to rely on our works as the way, the avenue in which we relate to God. Man, sinners, broken people, people who are marginalized, they don't have that. So Matthew is saying that when Jesus says, it is finished, that it was actually the unbelieving Gentile Roman centurions and soldiers that got it first. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus is forsaken so that we can be accepted. Jesus says it is finished, it is finalized once and for all. Our debts are paid so that we can have relationship with the Father based on love and not merit. And therefore, third, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. What does all of this mean for us? There is a way in which We can say true things, even true things about God, and still not know him. There's a kind of irony in verse 41 where the chief priests say, he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. And the reason why that's ironic uh, is because it's all true, actually. (laughs) Like he did save others. He was in the very act of saving others. And that's precisely why he could not save himself But it's also why he is the king, not just the king of Israel, but the whole world. They spoke this kind of ironic truth about God, but never knew him. And so the danger for us is the same. I I think there's kind of two different responses for us here today. You might be in a position or a place where you're like, you know what, I'm not a Christian. And so your response should, first of all, be to, to look at the cross And then wrestle with this idea of, is he the son of God? Is he who he says he is? That's what what the cross is asking you to wrestle with. Um, But those of us who who say, yes, we believe all of these things, these things are true, then for us, the question is, how, how do we wrestle with the implications of the gospel? How do we wrestle with the fruit of the gospel? You know, we say... um, we say that the gospel is slippery. I don't know if you've ever heard that language used here before, that the gospel is slippery, meaning like we lose, our, we lose our grip on it. We lose our grip on the gospel. And it's not that we forget the gospel per se, right? Because we're preaching the cross here today, and it's not like any of you showed up here this morning and are like, oh, Jesus died on the cross. Thank you, Pastor Eric. I totally forgot that right? Like, I forgot that, yeah, I was a Christian and that Jesus died on the cross. Like, thanks for sharing the gospel with us again. Totally forgot that. Like, thanks for the reminder. That's not probably any of you here today. 
when we're talking about when we say the gospel is slippery, that we lose our grip on the gospel, what we're saying is we lose our ability to take the gospel and then uh, the way in which we relate to God, the way in which we relate to others, the way in which we view things, we lose our grip on that. It's the implications of the gospel, the application of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel. These are the things that become slippery to us, the things that we lose our grip on. It's not that we forget the narrative of the gospel, we forget the application of the gospel. And I just want to tackle a little bit of, of uh, you know, some of the application of the gospel and how I actually think that the fruit of the gospel and the application of the gospel becomes a little bit controversial in our culture, and it's becoming more so. And we'll, we'll take a look at that. Has anyone ever done a, uh, a group project for a class, right? G- group projects, whether it's in high school or whether it's in, in you know, the university or college, You've done a group project probably before. And group projects are the worst, amen? Like, are not group projects the worst, right? A few, there was a few heads that nodded, and I'll tell you why they agree that, uh, that group projects are the worst. Because inevitably, what happens is you're assigned a group of like five or six individuals to do this group project, and it usually counts for like, you know, 90% of your final grade or something like that, so it's super important. And, um, and then inevitably what happens is you always have those one or two freeloaders, don't you? Those one or two individuals that just uh, show up and don't contribute anything and make everyone else pick, yeah, amen, yeah. What's funny, what's funny is as I'm looking out and I'm talking about we hate group projects, right? There's some people that are like, yes, and those are the people that work really hard. And then when I'm like freeloaders, there's a couple of people that look at each other and kind of snicker and thumbs up like, yeah, we're the freeloaders. So you know who you are. You know who you are. There's freeloaders in these group projects. And um, well, I went to, when I went to high school, there was a group project that uh, we were assigned to. And I went to a Christian high school. And we had a Bible teacher for this Bible class. And so he, has, he assigned us this group project. You know, we were put into groups of like four or five individuals, maybe, a little, maybe less than that. So we had these groups. And, um, and it was going to be our, for our final, our, kind of in, instead of an exam, a final exam, this was going to count as the score for our final exam. And the topic of this uh, group project was about the grace nature of the cross. The grace nature of, of God. And so everybody does all of their projects, and everybody's, you know, work, most, most people are working hard, and then there's the few freeloaders, right? Everybody turns in their assignments, and it's like, whew, we're all done with all of that work. And then the teacher gets up in front of everybody and does this. He announces to the class that he's going to give us an example of God's grace. And he says, everyone, regardless of how good or how bad you did on this project, everyone as, a, as an extension of my grace, is going to get an A+. What do you think happened? How did people respond? Well, for those that worked really hard, they weren't like, awesome! Like, the teacher's grace is wonderful! Like, everyone's getting an A+. No, that wasn't their response, was it? They were like, wait a second. I would have gotten an A regardless. I earned it. And you're going to give those freeloaders... And A, like, how dare you? They were upset, upset by grace. They worked really hard. It wasn't fair. Why should Ricky Bobby get the same grade as me? He didn't do anything. 
right? <laughs> our, our anger at others, I, my anger at others, sometimes when I see good things or grace, the grace nature of God being poured out on others, I often get upset, and then I realize that actually this anger that I have is actually a misplaced anger towards a gracious God. I've been a good boy or a good girl. I deserve something better than they do. How dare you give them grace? And what that's doing, it's revealing that the gospel has gotten slippery for us. Right? We get the gospel up here but it's not made its way here. It's not made its way into our hands. We become the older son in the story of the prodigal son, right? You're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. We become the older son where we pout about what God should be giving us that he's granting to the younger son. So for the, the call for, uh, for us is to truly embrace the gospel and all of the messy implications that come with it. I can't embrace only parts of the gospel that I like as I choose. Here's the thing about the Messiah, Jesus, but the Messiah, and the gospel that I think is hard for us to accept. When the Jews anticipated the Messiah, when the Jews were looking forward to who the Christ was going to be, they anticipated someone that was going to come in and make things better, and save them with brute force, a, a Messiah who would destroy their enemies, namely the Romans. Right? That was, that was the, the, the good news that they were hoping for. That was the Messiah that they were hoping for. And then when the Messiah actually does show up, he confounds everyone, even his disciples, because their imaginations were too narrow. They could not imagine a world that is made be better with a Messiah that lays down his life, sacrifices himself, with grace and love and forgiveness. They could not imagine that that was the way forward to a better world. They could only imagine a world that was made better through force. And then Jesus and his cross turns all of that upside down. And we live in a world today, I mean, for goodness sakes, when you look at the world today in our Western culture, and you look at like the political spectrum, uh, the things that are going on in the political world, like the way we, both sides agree that the way to move forward is by destroying the other side. That's, that's the culture that we live in. Just attack the other side. Demonstrate to your tribe, to your constituents, that you're willing to trample on others for the sake of progress. But the gospel is that Jesus gave himself up to be trampled for our ultimate good. And that just doesn't make sense with our Western sensibilities. We have no imagination for a world that is made better by an innocent Jesus willingly letting himself be butchered. And so we proclaim the gospel and then we take up swords against each other. But when the gospel actually takes root and I have a firm grip on the gospel, it changes the way I view God and view others. It is the grace nature that changes people. It's not force. It's not violence. It is grace that changes people. I want to show you here in a second a, a clip. Now, this clip is very personal to me. Um, I, uh, at 18 years old, was at my university and was taking a Bible class and had a professor who uh, graciously walked with me for the rest of my four years there and really discipled me. And one of the things that uh, he, he kind of got uh, is that I'm, I'm a four and I, 
I soak in stuff, four on the Enneagram, and I soak up the realities of the world by metaphor. Like storytelling is, really connects to me. And so he understood that, and so he began to preach the gospel to me through this idea of metaphor and story. And he showed me uh, this video um, called, and I'm not going to pronounce this wrong because I don't speak French, but Les Miserables, okay? Not the musical version because musicals, eh, not really my thing, right? Uh, but, uh, but he showed like the version with Liam Neeson, which is kind of awkward because, you know, Liam Neeson. But, um, <laughs> so, but, but it really connected with me. And I want to show you the clip that for me woke me up and I'm like, I get it now. I get it. It's the gospel that changes me. It's the gospel that changes other. And in this clip, we have Jean Valjean. He's a Frenchman who is a hardened criminal. And he's just spent 19 years doing manual slave labor to pay for his crimes. But now he's paid for his crimes after 19 years and he's released. And he has to report to a parole officer in another town. And on his way to this other town, he stops off at this parish and he knocks on the door, and it's answered by a bishop and his, his sister or wife or something, and he begs them for food, and uh, this is what transpires. So we can go ahead and run that clip now. Do you have any food you can spare for me? Come in. Look, I'm a convict. My name is Jean Valjean. I've served 19 years hard labor. They let me out four days ago. I'm on parole. I have to go all the way to Dijon to report by Monday or they'll send me back to prison. So here's my passport. I can't read, but I know what it says. He's very dangerous. Monsieur, you're welcome to eat with us as my guest. I'm a convict. You saw my passport. I know who you are. You're going to let me inside your house. What crime did you commit? Maybe I killed someone. How do you know I'm not going to murder you? How do you know I'm not going to murder you? What's that? A joke? I suppose we'll have to trust each other. I didn't kill anyone. I'm a thief. I stole food. I stole, but I paid for it. 19 years and chains. So they let me out and they give me a yellow passport. What can I do with the yellow passport? I have to go to my parole officer in Dijon, and then what? Starve to death? <laughs> 19 years, and now the real punishment begins. <laughs> Men can be unjust. Men, not God. All right, whoever you are, thank you. A meal and a bed to sleep in. A real bed. And in the morning, I'll be a new man.
Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. I don't want to um, give away what else happens, but Jean Valjean becomes a man of grace from that point on in the way in which he treats other people. And here's what I want us to say or see. All of us are Jean Valjean, and we've all had a Savior that has treated us in that way. And the implication of the gospel for us is are we able to relate to God as a loving Father and relate to each other with with and through this lens of grace. Um, we're going to take communion here, and um, communion is a reminder for us of what Jesus bore for us, the grace, the costly nature of grace, the costly nature. We just saw how much it cost that man, pr pr pretty much everything he owned, his life savings in order to redeem that man. And for Jesus, it cost him his very life. And so we're going to take communion. You'll have a little cup. 
The, the bread represents Christ's body broken for us. And the juice represents Christ's blood spilled out for us. Jesus didn't give up silver and gold. He gave up his own flesh and blood for us. And so we take this in remembrance of him. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. The band is going to come forward. Uh, they're going to play. And uh, you're free to take communion whenever you're ready and uh, join the band in worship. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your amazing, radical love and grace to me. I can't even fathom it, that when the Father looks at me, when you look at me, Father, you see the works of Christ. You see someone who is totally innocent. And I can come boldly to your throne. I don't have to stay barred from your presence because the veil has been torn because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that I can relate to you in that way. Father, my heart uh, as a pastor here today is that we would be transformed by your gospel and begin to learn to love each other in that way. It's hard. It's hard. The gospel is slippery and we lose our grip. Father, I pray that you, your spirit would um, compel us with your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.